Good morning. This is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. Good morning. It's 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time. April 30th, 2019. This is episode 90 of Bitcoin and... Woo, there's all kinds of weird shit going on, man. <laughs> I don't even know where to start, but I am going to start with some good news. Jack Ballers, the baller, just dropped uh, Zap iOS on the App Store. Um, and he has a Medium post. So let's get into that. Uh, he did this yesterday, April the 29th. He says, yo, guess what? Zap iOS is now listed on Apple's App Store. You can download it here. Clearly, here's a link. Zap was enabled, has enabled thousands of people all over the world to use Lightning in a non-custodial way on their iPhone. The credit goes to the amazing minds at Lightning Labs for their work on LND, along with the broader Lightning developer community. And all of you reading this blog post, for reference, this is what the very first Zap iOS design looks like, and he's got a nice, you know, a screen clearly a, a screenshot of uh, uh, of, <laughs> of the of the app on the phone. My God, okay, and this is what Zap iOS looks like today, and the difference between the two are are, are striking, and it looks it looks great. So this is this is awesome, man. Zap iOS has iterated on its design and implemented a ton of new features all because of the community. This is truly a community driven project. Thanks for testing, reporting bugs and giving feedback for us. Zap being on the app store just changes how and where people will download it. There is still <clears throat> much more work to do. We are now confident in Zap's stability and ability to deliver on its current intended functionality. And for us, that was enough to move to the app store. I have great ambitions and high hopes for the Lightning Network and for Zap. One of those is to have Lightning nodes running on everyday devices such as your iPhone. This allows users to use Zap in a non-custodial way without requiring a remote node setup. So with this move to the App Store, Zap's test flight alpha program will now be used to test running LND on the device with Neutrino. God, this is so cool. So if you have already if you have already joined our test flight alpha and would like to test out non-custodial on-device LND support, no remote node setup required, don't move a muscle. For those that have not joined the test flight program and would like to do so, click here. We hope to have Neutrino enabled Zap iOS ready for testing this week. One of the tallest hurdles to jump to get Zap onto the store was submitting a privacy policy to Apple. Every app is required to have a privacy policy and without one, a no app store for you. Usually developers, for developers, this is a non-issue. Typically, many early projects simply download free privacy policies from the internet. However, for Zap, this was an issue. 
All standard privacy policies state the application may require users to provide personal information. The application may use third parties to collect information and data from its users. Information such as IP addresses will be stored, etc. Here is a snippet from a privacy policy generated by App Privacy Policy Generator. And basically, it's sort of the, the, the same thing. <clears throat> thanks, but no thanks. Zap is a trailblazer. Zap is a tool used to represent the community and all that Bitcoin and the human beings behind Bitcoin stand for. Zap is a representation of a greater world, a world where applications don't infringe on users' privacy by default. After doing some more research, I realized that it is assumed all applications spy on you and consume some personal data for their users. No cypherpunk privacy policy has ever been written. So we wrote one. <laughs> And here's an excerpt. I guess this is, uh, okay, it's not the full privacy policy. It's an excerpt, so let's get into it. Uh, the company intends for users to be able to use the functionality of the app on a decentralized, anonymous basis. The company therefore does not collect, use, maintain, or share any personal information about you when you use the app. And the company does not use any tracking technology to track your use of the app. The company also does not allow third parties to collect personal information about you when you use the app or to use tracking technology to track your use of the app. Then it, uh, it, in end excerpt, our full privacy policy is public and can be found here. That's all for now, folks. I continue to be humbled and amazed by this community and the support you all have for Zap. Thank you. The show goes on. You know this. <laughs> Expect to hear from us often. We've got a lot in the works. As always, don't be shy. Hit me up via email, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Cheers, friends. Uh, wow. So Jack, just out there being ballers, dude. Nice, nice. Uh, Coin Lab's probably not going to be happy with this one. And I'm not, you know, this is from the Bitcoin.pub. And I, I, I just don't, you know, this is Clayton Menzel. Um, and it's coming, his write-up is coming from Bitcoin magazine. So, um, let's get into this a little bit. If you're a creditor in Mt. Gox civil rehabilitation case, the defunct exchange may have automatically filled or filed and approved a reimbursement claim for you, provided that your Mt. Gox account was verified when it was still operating. According to a Reddit post from user Der, 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 Der Winge, I guess, <laughs> Der Ewinge, on April 22nd, 2019, Nobuaki Kobayashi, a Japanese attorney and trustee of the ongoing case, has alerted former Mt. Gox users who didn't voluntarily apply for reimbursement that they will also receive compensation for their lost Bitcoin as rehabilitation takes effect. The exchange is using KYC information that was originally submitted to verify accounts to registered users who haven't or to register users who haven't directly applied for rehabilitation. Handling <clears throat> more than half of all Bitcoin transactions at the time of its closure, the Japanese exchange suspended trades and declared bankruptcy in 2014 following an alleged hack. Since then, legal battles have been ongoing in Tokyo courts. On, in June 2018, legal proceedings shifted from bankruptcy to civil rehabilitation following the court's approval of a creditor's petition that was filed in November 2017. The legal move provided more leeway 
for how creditors could be reimbursed. Two months after the shift, private individuals were allowed to begin filing claims for reimbursement, and this same filing system was opened up to corporate clients that September. In Kobayashi's latest email to those who had assets stored on Mt. Gox and provided KYC information, he claimed that, quote, the creditors who objected to your self-approved rehabilitation claim withdrew their objections. And as a result of the approval of your self-approved rehabilitation claim has become effective and you no longer need to file an application for claim assessment. The email also included an English translation translation of some of the court's most frequently asked questions regarding civil rehabilitation process. As Section Q1-5 states, the process will now generate self-approved claims wherein users will be notified that they are eligible for reimbursement even if they did not file a claim personally. Der Ewinge claimed that he fell into this category as his sum of Bitcoin stored in Mt. Gox was so small that he did not consider an arduous claims process to be worth the effort. It is unclear how difficult it will be for non-KYC clients to pursue civil rehabilitation, just as it is unclear what form of reimbursement this will take and on what timetable it will be carried out. The FAQ added that, quote, the submission deadline for a uh, for a rehabilitation plan is April 26, 2019, but it may be extended depending on the progress of the proceedings, <clears throat> claiming that users will be informed through the appropriate channels, including his web, this website, when a rehabilitation plan is submitted. End quote. Besides this deadline to make a plan, no concrete objectives in the roadmap have been made public knowledge yet. So... <sighs> You know, I, I, I'm, I hadn't heard anything about CoinLab dropping their lawsuit, so I don't, I'm not sure about the efficacy of this, but it's out there, so you know, if, there it is. Um, let's get on up into this one, CoinDesk.com. Uh, this is Yogita Katri, April 29th, 2019. Online stock brokerage E-Trade Financial is said to be preparing to launch cryptocurrency trading services. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, E-Trade. I, uh, it's, uh, it's okay. I mean, adoption is adoption, but E-Trade was, I don't know, man. I, I stay as far away from that thing as I possibly can. But if it onboards, it onboards. A Bloomberg report on Saturday citing a person familiar with the matter said that E-Trade will initially add support, trading support for Bitcoin and Ether, uh, uh, whatever, <clears throat> with more cryptocurrencies to be added in the future. The U.S. brokerage is also reportedly finalizing a third party to hold the cryptocurrencies. Nathaniel Popper, tech reporter at the New York Times, tweeted Friday, founded in 1982, NASDAQ-listed E-Trade has close to 4 million customers. Last year, the firm also launched trading in Bitcoin futures from CME Group 4 customers. Traditional financial players are increasingly looking to offer cryptocurrency services. Just last week, another brokerage, TD Ameritrade, was said to be testing Bitcoin and Litecoin trading on its platform. Last year, TD Ameritrade invested an undisclosed sum in cryptocurrency exchange ErisX, mobile stock trading app Robinhood, on the other hand, launched cryptocurrency trading services over a year ago and recently announced a plan to launch an IPO. <clears throat> okay, well, whatever. Now, like I said, it's, you know, I don't know what anybody else thinks about E-Trade, but I always kind of thought it was like, uh, I don't know, like the retailer dumpster fire. 
you know, or, or retail dumpster fire when it comes to, comes to uh, stocks and, and, and whatnot like that. And I never had an account with them, but you know, I, I know some people do like it and like, you know, 4 million apparently like it because they have 4 million users and 4 million people getting access and exposure to this stuff. Yeah, I don't think it's going to hurt anything. Um, <laughs> not, not like this one. Um, check some, uh, at check some zero, uh, says, is that salty enough for you yet? And he, uh, links to, um, this document, this court document, uh, of the climbing, the climbing, uh, right case. And the name of it is, uh, let's see, United States district court, Southern district of Florida case number nine colon 18 slash CV slash eight one or eight zero one seven six slash BB plaintiff's memorandum in opposition to defendant's motion for judgment on the pleadings for lack of subject matter jurisdiction. Okay. I'm not going to read the whole thing clearly because it's really, really long, but the part that I, the part that, uh, I thought was really interesting is this section about that email that is clearly a forgery and just the, the language that's in the language that's in this describing the for, the email as a forgery is is great. It just it's like a beat down. <clears throat> so the the heading is the email is a forgery. Suspiciously, Craig produced the quote unquote email attached to his motion as Exhibit A as a PDF and not an original email file. Tellingly, the metadata on the PDF file shows that it was created on April 16th, 2014, almost a year and a half after it was allegedly sent by Dave Kleeman and a year after he died. The metadata further indicates that the local time zone of the computer on which the PDF was created is the same time zone associated with Eastern Australia, the country Craig lived in during 2014. But if that itself wasn't enough to call the email PDF into question, just six minutes before Craig last modified the PDF, he emailed a draft of the final forgery from himself to himself. Notably, the forgery in process wasn't yet complete. It was missing the critical fields stating that the email came from Dave Kleeman, went to UN Win, and was dated December 20th, 2012. In the intervening six minutes, Craig completed the forgery, saving it as a PDF, but was apparently too rushed to correctly spell the name of his deceased best friend is in quotes. <laughs> God, for the court's convenience, the draft forgery and the final forgery forgery are reproduced below and they're essentially screenshots. Um, it says, finally, if there were any remaining doubt as to the email's fraudulent nature, there isn't. Craig's attempt to make the perfect forgery backfired. Craig included a PGP signature in the email in an attempt to make it cryptographically indisputable, also in quotes, that the email was sent by Dave Kleeman. This proved to be his undoing. Pretty Good Privacy is a computer software program that allows users to, among other things, encrypt and decrypt data such as emails, files, or documents. Communication programs such as GNUGP leverage PGP encryption <clears throat> so that a recipient can verify the data received has, uh, one, originated from the sender, and two, has not been altered. In order to create a PGP signature of an email, the sender creates a hash of the email's content with a private key that is possessed by the sender. Critically, the resulting signature creates a timestamp indicating when the digital signature was created. 
Furthermore, while the timestamp is present, it's not obvious to the uninitiated and takes advanced computer knowledge to decode. After a flurry of helpful public analysis from the cryptocurrency community, plaintiffs retained Dr. Matthew E. Edmund. Dr. Edmund has a PhD in computer science and is an expert in cryptography, Bitcoin, and PGP software. As explained in detail in his affidavit, Dr. Edmund confirmed that the PGP signature was in fact created on March 12, 2014 at 5.07 a.m. UTC, according to the computer on which the signature was created. That is more than a year after Dave died and a mere two weeks before Yuen filed her fraudulent SunBiz filing. Clearly, this email purporting to show Dave appointing Wen, or Yuen, I can't pronounce her name, as a director of W&K is a forgery. Dave never appointed her to be a director in any company. In fact, she told Ira via email <clears throat> that she knew nothing about Dave. <laughs> But after being caught lying to this court for the fourth time, he withdrew the exhibit under the pretense of yet a fifth lie that he couldn't verify the date he drafted and sent the forgery. What a shit show. It's a circus. And if I don't, not a legal expert, certainly never been a judge, but I I wonder at what point does a, a United States judge sitting behind a bench get so sick of somebody that they just tell them to GFY? I mean, if, if it's not something like this, then I don't know. I don't know how much crap a judge, a sitting judge can put up with before they can tell somebody to GFY because this just looks like he's wasting the court's time. And that's all, that's all I'm going to say about that. But yeah, Craig lied about the email. He forged the email. He's a forger and a liar. And I just, I just don't get this. I don't get how somebody can carry, carry something like this on for this long. And I think it's, I I really do. I think it's like one of the worst cases of, of narcissism that any of us have ever seen. It may be a textbook case in the future for what narcissism can do and what it looks like in a, in a human being, if you can call him that. Um, <clears throat> on up, Francis Pouliot. Pouliot. I am, but I gotta, I gotta ask him how to pronounce his name. Really good news. After almost a year of education and lobbying, Quebec energy regulators have finally decided to overturn the Bitcoin mining restrictions put in place under the Liberal government. Is the damage already done? At least local Bitcoin miners can catch a breath. So, yeah, uh, let's see where he's uh, getting this from. Uh, let's see. He's uh, at Cryptihex, crypt, oh, oh, K-R-Y-P-T-Y-K-H-E-X, says Quebec can finally be competitive once again. Moratorium is over. We can finally evolve. This moratorium combined with the bear market hurt us a lot, especially since we could not adjust to the lower rates. This killed most small and medium-sized facilities this winter. So yeah, uh, apparently Quebec has reversed their their ban on Bitcoin mining or or not, not ban, but they certainly didn't, they certainly weren't playing nice. And there was, I mean, I remember when, when that happened and 
Francis and a whole bunch of other people that were up there in in, uh, in Canada were just screaming because it was like we have so much hydroelectric power and now we can't even use that. And anyway, so it looks like the moratorium's over, and that's good news. That's really, really good news. Uh, Eric Lombroso has a set of three tweets I want to read. The main barrier preventing development of more open digital markets is cultural, not technological. People continue to rely on authorities to protect them from cheaters, and authorities continue encouraging this dependency to legitimize their claim to power. Bitcoin is exciting precisely because it shines a light on this cultural issue, not because its technology is hard to copy. Trying to rebuild the existing culture, but with blockchain technology, will only lead to a bunch of investors losing money and lots of disappointment. Having said that, perhaps we really do need a mass extinction event brought on by people making horrible decisions before society is ready to make this leap. I kind of agree. A mass extinction event is something that for me has kind of been looming on the horizon and just kind of like, I don't know, peeking over the clouds every once in a while, just wondering if if we're ready yet to just have our clocks cleaned. And by our, I mean, I, 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 I essentially, if, if a mass, if a, if a mass extinction event were to happen, it's going, it's going to hurt Bitcoin in the short term it will absolutely demolish shit coinery though. And I'm not sure if there's any other way out because every, every, every time I turn around, I, you know, like it happened, happened this morning. I saw an account of somebody that I really trust or not trust, but uh, somebody who I would get information from. And I see a massive shill for shit coinery. And I don't know if it was a troll. I'm not going to, say anything about the the content. I don't know if it was a troll or not at this point. I hope it is because it was just naked shill, man, totally naked shill. Uh, and it, it was just, it's just frightening when I see shit like that. Um, breaker mag is shutting down. Ah, no man, never a dull moment in crypto at breaker mag is shutting down. And just like in crypto where a decentralized community is the fuel behind any project or protocol, the event formerly known as BreakerCon will not only still happen, it will be even better. That was from uh, Ditto PA. And he's uh, talking to, let's get into this for a sec. Yeah, Udi Wertheimer has uh, a tweet also talking about the Breaker Mag news. says, sad to see Breaker Mag go. Some pieces were really good and impactful, like the investigation into Coinbase's Neutrino. As for me, I'll be printing and handing out copies at conferences of this epic Crypto Man Ran takedown by David Morris. And he's got a, 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 a archive.org link to this uh, uh, Breaker Mag article that the title says, Nobody Believes Crypto Man Ran, and that's really great for Bitcoin. Uh, that was in September of, uh, or no, that was in October of 2018. Anyway, so... Yeah, lost another one, but you know, it, it is what it is. Uh, let's see. Okay. Uh, this was actually kind of interesting. The incoming New York attorney general plans wide ranging investigations of Trump and family. And when I read it, I was like, wait a minute. Uh, New York attorney general is also engaged in the whole Bitfinex thing. 
So I, I drop in, in, you know, I'm not going to read this article because it's not about Bitcoin. It's about Trump and family. But what's odd is that I didn't realize that Letitia James, who's the New York attorney general, she just got elected. I mean, she's, she's like, she's like Niag in, um, uh, elect and already she, <laughs> I, I'm just saying, I think she's bit off a little bit more than she can chew. She's got Bitfinex on, on one hand, and now she's going to take on, on the, you know, the presidency on the other hand, single-handedly, and she just got elected. I mean, she's not even burned in yet. You'd think that you'd want a little bit of burn-in time to figure out how shit works, who's in what office, I don't know, how the, how the you know, the, the, uh, how stuff just, you know, works before you start pummeling with both hands. So I just, I thought it was interesting. It may, it's probably going to end up being nothing, but whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's not as chilling as Venezuela, Venezuela's uh, Guaido takes to streets and military uprising. It kind of looks like there might be an attempted coup going on in Venezuela. Um, and in a very real way, it looks, it it's being framed that Guaido is kind of forcing the, the coup. At least that's the language that I'm seeing in mainstream media. I don't believe it, but it's not impossible. I'm just saying shit's going down in Venezuela. So all eyes should be on Venezuela. It, you know, are the, are the people finally going to wake up and just be done with it or not? Because as I've said in, in this show many, many times, I'm always surprised at just how much a population of people will take before they break. And if this goes nowhere, then I'm going to be stunned yet one more time as to just how much the human condition will allow, I don't know, just how much the human condition will allow itself to be pummeled before it gets up and starts trying to kick some ass. But anyway, so Venezuela's in the middle of, of crap right now, so be aware um, tell, please, somebody tell me more about IOTA. Coindesk has a, uh, an article out. It is Bitcoin startup unveils Thunderbird lightning code for IOT devices. <laughs> uh, yeah, baby. Japanese startup. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Credit, uh, Elisa, Elisa Hertig wrote this one. This was this morning. Uh, Japanese startup Nayuta is releasing an in-progress lightning implementation with a compelling new focus, the Internet of Things. As revealed exclusively to Coindesk, Nayuta is publishing the first lightning implementation geared specifically towards Internet of Things or networks of connected devices that feed data to one another. The idea behind the release is that it connects to Bitcoin's live network as opposed to a test one, allowing transactions of real BTC. To date, their release represents the fourth Lightning implementation to officially launch on Bitcoin's mainnet so far. Four. Four. Count them. Four. So far, oh, sorry, following software pushes from startups, Async, Blockstream, and Lightning Labs. Called part of, or, uh, Tarmigan, the Japanese word for Thunderbird, the name plays off the fact that the promising Bitcoin technology it builds upon is named Lightning. 
the startup view micropayments as a major element for the budding Internet of Things industry, which has attracted attention from many big-name firms. Some of those companies are investing time and resources at the intersection of blockchain and IoT. And while there's not one clear direction for how the tech can be integrated into connected device networks, recent headlines make it clear that significant industries are getting involved. The idea behind one aspect, as demonstrated by Jaguar's IOTA experiment, as well as works by startups like Nayuta, is that IoT devices will be capable of making small payments to one another. In the case of Lightning, such micropayments could be conducted using Bitcoin. The co-founder Kenichi Kurimoto explained to Coindesk, quote, the Lightning Network has the following promising characteristics. Small transaction amounts or micropayments, borderless and cross-domain payments, real-time payments, large transaction per second potential, especially the combination of A and B, has the potential to create a whole new market because humans do not want to make payment action many times. It is required to link with other actions performed by many people or with some kind of autonomous action. Nayuta partnered with major electric Japanese company last year to put lightning payments to the test for recharging electric cars. But while this is also a vision shared by larger companies like Qualcomm Ventures, thus far these ideas haven't taken off at a large scale, perhaps partly because Bitcoin's micropayment technology is still underdeveloped. But Nayuta is trying to put the idea to the test. Soon to follow is a device they call Lightning Shield. Arduinos are little computers... (laughs) Nice. Used mostly by hobbyists to create robots or other technology. Shields add extra functionality from motors for making things spin or better sound. A new type of technology that can be clipped onto an Arduino board. Quote, it means dramatically increasing the number of people who can develop prototypes of IoT applications that use Lightning Network features. Quote, IoT is one of the most important Lightning Network application areas, but no one knows what the killer app is. God, we ask ourselves this question way too many times. In such situation, an increasing number of developers and prototyping trials are very important, end quote. But this one adds lightning functionality or the ability for said device to send or receive small payments. Quote, our long-term goal is to make Tarmigan, the small footprint lightning network software that operates on small hardware. This mainnet version experimentally implements an SPV wallet mode with which it operates on an independent node on Raspberry Pi Zero. SPV, which stands for Simplified Payment Verification, is a small lightning node on the network that requires an end user to download less data. A Raspberry Pi Zero is possibly the cheapest computer to date, costing a mere five bucks. I don't know where you're buying your Raspberry Pis are. I can't get one for five. To show how it works... Nayuta has released a, a short demo video showing how they sent a lightning transaction over their new lightning shield, causing a strip of lights to shine. Damn, this is going to, I'm telling you, man, the future looks a hell of a lot more fun than the past. Right, this is, again, somebody remind me why we give a shit about IOTA. I don't. All right. So anyway, there's a video at the bottom of this clip and you can get to it. If you go to uh, my curated Twitter timeline, um, it is in the show notes. Uh, if you scroll down past, uh, you know, the, the description of the show of, of the, you know, today's show and all that kind of stuff down there is where I give you a link directly to uh, uh, the morning roundup uh, list 
And that's where I keep all of the stuff that I talk about on, on the day show, basically in a, in a great big linear stack and just go down and, and you can get to the, the CoinDesk article from there or just, you know, just Google CoinDesk and, and uh, Thunderbird and you'll probably get right to it. Let's see now. Um, Creme de la Crypto dropped a really interesting medium piece. Uh, I'm going to read just an excerpt from it. Um, but it's essentially it's um, sort of a, a retelling of a, a couple of uh, polls that were taken uh, to kind of gauge, uh, I guess, exposure and uh, general knowledge of the general public uh, about Bitcoin. And it's 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 a really cool piece, but it's also pretty bullish. Um, the the highlighted thing I'm going to read from that just says, we suspect that the difference in market environment between the two surveys would have a negative impact on Bitcoin sentiment in the most recent survey. Despite the bear market, the data shows that Bitcoin awareness, familiarity, perception, conviction, propensity to purchase, and ownership all increased or improved significantly, dramatically in many cases. So what's he talking about here? Okay, well, I'll just I'll just read you this. This is uh, from the uh, actual piece. Uh, Bitcoin is a demographic megatrend data analysis, and this is Spencer Bogard, who's Creme de la Crypto, and he says what follows is data and analysis from a survey of American adults regarding general sentiment towards Bitcoin. The survey was conducted by Harris Poll on behalf of Blockchain Capital from April twenty third to through the twenty fifth, twenty nineteen, and consisted of a representative sample of 2,029 American adults. The survey was an augmented version of one we ran in October of 2017. So these these are uh, a comparison of two different polls. One as things were going skyrocketing to to the moon, and now basically the depths of this this bear market actually not the depths we are uh, we are off the lows quite a bit but still it's it feels bearish and even if it's consolidation it still feels bearish you know but whatever anyway uh and there's a lot there is i mean it, this is a big piece there's lots of data it talks about awareness familiarity perception conviction propensity to purchase Bitcoin preference rates, ownership, and blah, blah, blah. But one of the things that I found really interesting was part of Creme de la Crypto's uh, tweet storm that accompanies this piece, which sort of gives you a, an encapsulated version of what's going on. And down in, in the tweet storm himself, it, says, it talks about ownership. And he says, in total, 11% of the population owns Bitcoin, including 20% of those aged 18 to 34 and 15% of those aged 35 to 44. To help put the millennial pro- proclivity to Bitcoin in perspective, only 37% of people under 35 are invested in the stock market. So that, that so the data point that 20% of those in the same group own Bitcoin is particularly surprising. Ultimately, Bitcoin is a demographic megatrend with younger age groups as the driving force in terms of Bitcoin awareness, familiarity, et cetera, et cetera, and ownership rates. So millennials seem to be driving uh, the bus a little bit on this. So give it, give it up to the millennials, man. Nice. 
Very nice. Last thing I got is uh, Tur de Meester, um, as if he, as if Creme de la Crypto, uh, crypto and, and uh, Tur de Meester are like fighting back and back, uh, slugging it out with each other, not with each other, but, you know, sort of like supporting each other. Uh, Tur de Meester dropped this uh, docsend.com from Adamant, uh, Adamant Capital. Uh, Bitcoin in heavy accumulation, and this was actually back in April uh, April eighteenth of twenty nineteen, so not too long ago. But still, it I mean, it, it was like I got these two things dropped on you know right like back to back, and they're both bullish, man. It's it's nice. It's fine, you know. It's it's nice to maybe see some clear air out of this bear market. Anyway, with that, that that'll be uh, it for your morning roundup. Come and get them. It's your vital statistics from bitinfocharts.com. Bitcoin is an average price of 5306 The low is going to be over at uh, Simex at 5250 and it looks like the high is going to be over at Bitfinex at 5578 Man, that's that's a larger spread than I've seen in a while. Uh, transactions over the last 24 hours is pretty constant. 351,000 transactions have been made giving an average of about 15,000 transactions per hour. 1.875 million BTC has been sent over that 24-hour period with an average send per hour of 78,000. Average transaction value is 5.34 BTC and the median transaction value is 0.046 or right around 250 bucks USD. Block time's on the low side, but not weird. It's nine minutes and 32 seconds. 0.51 BTC are being taken per block in uh, fees. And over the last 24 hours, it looks like 76 BTC have been taken in fees overall. Hash rate is now above 50 exahashes per second. Good job, guys. With an increase of 3.45% in the last 24 hours. The last GitHub commit was yesterday, again, so the 29th. For left to right, Ethereum's 158, Bcash is at 254, Litecoin's at 72, BSV is at 53, Ethereum Classic is at 5.8, Dogecoin is at $0.0025. And it's uh, 32,000 transactions over the last 24 hours. Still smoking BSV, but not smoking Bcash, who has 47,776 transactions. And we're, we'll, we'll get into a little bit of the train wreck that is uh, part of the Bitcoin Cash community. Uh, but for now, that's going to do it for your vital statistics. Okay, I'm going to do it, see if I can do an abbreviated version of Bitcoin Optech. This is newsletter number 44. It was released this morning. Um, it's, action item is not a whole lot, but they do want to say, note, if the Bitcoin Core release team are satisfied that no blocking issues were found in the fourth release candidate distributed last week, they intend to tag the final release for version 0.18.0 around the time this newsletter is being published. If that happens, we'll provide detailed release coverage in next week's newsletter. But 
please don't wait on us if you plan to upgrade. Everything you need to know about the new version is explained in its release notes, which will be published with or linked to as part of the various release <clears throat> announcements on different different platforms such as BitcoinCorp.org. Um, it says uh, Beck32 sending support. Uh, it is said that imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. In this week's section, we take a quick look at a few other systems that are using variations on BEC32. If you're already going to need to implement something that's basically BEC32 for another project, it's probably worth your time to implement it for Bitcoin too. <clears throat> Item. LN invoices use the BEC32 format with an extended human-readable part, HRP, and without BEC32's normal 90-character limit. See Bolt 11 for the full specification, and then it gives an example of a, of a BEC32 address with that human-readable. Bitcoin Cash new-style addresses use the BEC32 format with the HRP Bitcoin Cash and the separator colon instead of the version byte encoding a SegWit witness version, as in Bitcoin. It indicates whether the hash encoded by the address should be used with P2PKH or P2SH. See spec cache address for the full specification. Example, Bitcoin cash, colon, and then this address. Backup seeds. In June 2018, Jonas... Shell Schnelli proposed BEC32X, a scheme to encode private Bitcoin private keys, extended private keys, and extended public keys using BEC32 for error correction. See the full draft specification. Elements-based sidechain. Sidechains based on elementsproject.org, such as Blockstream Liquid, use both BEC32 addresses and a variation of them called BLEC32 addresses. Black 32 addresses are intended to uh, are intended for use with that platform's confidential assets and will soon be supported by the Explora blockchain ex- or block explorer for the liquid sidechain. We're unaware of a specification document for Black 32, but this code and that's a link is labeled as the reference implementation and is cited elsewhere in the project as quote unquote C liquid underscore ADDR dot PY for compact difference between from BEC thirty two end quote example of a BLEC thirty two address. Output script descriptors <clears throat> Although less directly related to BEC32, checksums based on the same Bose Shardouri BCH codes. There's no way I'm pronouncing that name. I'm not even going to try. I, I can't. Uh, used in BEC32 were added to the output script descriptors supported by Bitcoin Core. See Peter Wool's detailed comment, and then it gives an example. Uh, and I, I'm going to leave it. I'm going to leave it there. Uh, I will have the. Uh, uh, I, I I will tweet this out so that I can put it into my stack, and you can go read it for yourself. Uh, the this newsletter is really really informative. It's got a lot of stuff, and it's it goes from being able you know to just kind of give us you know non-coding type people a view of what's, you know, what's being worked on in a way that we can read all the way to being as high level of a coder as you can and really be able to pull, you know, pull out what's going on uh, with Bitcoin. Great. Optech is a great resource. I highly recommend reading it, even if it blows your socks off. So, but that's going to do it for the Optech newsletter. 
I'm dropping a love song on you guys. Y- y'all are salty today out there, man. Y'all are salty. Y'all need some love. This song is from Billy Thorpe. Now, you probably haven't heard of Billy Thorpe. If you have, good for you. But if you haven't, don't feel bad, man. The guy died in, like, I think it was 2007. But when he was alive, he made some some of the really, really great music. And uh, Children of the Sun was one of the songs that, that made him famous. And that was out, I think that came out in the 70s, like late 70s. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not playing that song because the thing is eight and a half minutes long. And I'm not going to do that to you. But be, right before he died, uh, he released, an, or it may have been posthumously, but there's a, a, an album from Billy Thorpe called Solo, The Last Recordings. And that's where this song is from. Now, this is a cover, and I don't know who, who wrote the original, uh, who wrote the original, but it's been around for a long time. But when, when I heard Billy Thorpe's version of it, it just blew me away because I did not realize how talented this man really was. I'm talking about the Master's Apprentice.
train wreck is about as cringe worthy as it gets man uh i i had never heard of these people before but apparently bitcoincashnotes.com is a thing and their uh twitter handle is bch notes all one word now these guys are printing bch cash like on paper like a dollar bill and it's not it, I mean, that's cringeworthy right there. Uh, and the fact that it's BCH is also cringeworthy. But the most cringeworthy part of this entire thing is they put Roger Ver's face on the notes. Ay, ay, ay. There's so much wrong with this. There's so much wrong with this, and I don't need to say another syllable about it because everybody that listens to this probably already knows what those problems are. So we're going to leave the daily train wreck in the smoldering pile that it is and go on and, and, and do something else. Satoshi's Treasure Time. So Toshi Treasure, again, that is seems to be the official uh, uh, Twitter account for S- the people behind Satoshi's Treasure, have uh, tweeted out yesterday. Uh, one of them says, bookstores in a certain country are apparently running low on a certain book. And then another one says, secondhand bookstore owners perplexed at sudden massive uptick in interest about cyberpunk science fiction and Tibetan Buddhism. So these, all, all the clues, uh, are books. And apparently you're supposed to hand the book with both hands to the three, uh, people that were, had their, their photographs in, in there. And, uh, I mean, I don't know if this is true, but it would be funny if uh, if this if it actually was true. If all of a sudden, like used bookstores just have this influx of people trying to buy this clue, you know, the, these clues because these are old books, right? So <laughs> it's just wonderful to watch. Again, one of the things that I like most about Bitcoin is 
watching how just awesome humans can be and then understand that that's going to be balanced with just how crappy humans can be. But this is just representing the very best of humanity. I, I love it. I love it. And uh, Sam, uh, let's see here. At Sam Samskis says, training for Satoshi treasure hunt using over the wire. Anyone have suggestions for other sites like this? And I'm like, over the wire. So it's over the wire.org. And the uh, the opening uh, or the the uh, landing page says war games. These war games offered by the over the wire community can help you learn and practice security concepts in the form of fun field games. To find out more about a certain war game, just visit its page linked from the menu on the left. If you have a problem, a question, or a suggestion, you can join us on IRC. Suggested order to play the games in: Bandit. Leviathan, Ornatus, or Krypton, Narnia, Behemoth, Atumo, Maze, and then seven is just dot, dot, dot. I think it's saying that by, by the time you get out of Maze, you're probably all, like completely okay. Each shell game has its own SSH port. Information about how to connect to each game using SSH is provided in the top left corner of the page. Keep in mind that every game uses a different SSH port. So if I go over to the Bandit, um, the first thing I'm presented with is a description of the game. And uh, and there's a lot of games. I mean, there's like, let's see, where is it? Uh, Vor- there's, uh, after Maze, there's Vortex, Semtex, Manpage, Drifter, and it looks like there's some other stuff, Kishi, Mon, Mon-, Mon XLA, and some others. And I, it, But if I go over to Vendor or uh, Bandit, it says... <clears throat> The Bandit War game is aimed at absolute beginners. It will teach the basics needed to be able to play other war games. If you notice something essential is missing or have ideas, let us know. Note for beginners, this game, like most other games, is organized in levels. You start at level zero and try to beat or finish it. Finishing a level results in information on how to start the next level. The pages on this website for level X contain information on how to start level X from the previous level, e.g. the page for level one has information on how to gain access from level zero to level one. All levels in this game have a page on this website and they are all linked from the side menu at the left of this page. And so um, it's like sort of those places that help you, that help you learn uh, how to code. And, you know, it's, it's neat. If I go actually, you know, go to level zero, it says level goal. The goal of this level is for you to log into the game using SSH. The host to which you need to connect is bandit.labs.overthewire.org on port 2220. The username is bandit zero and the password is bandit zero. Once logged in, go to the level one page to find out how to beat level one commands. You may need to solve this level SSH. And then helpful reading material, Secure Shell SSH on Wikipedia, and then another link that says how to use SSH on WikiHow. I again, I, I had no idea over the wire, you know, even existed. But man, I mean, this is this is the way this is the way forward. I just I don't see it being all that necessary to go get a degree in computer science anymore with the amount of people that are pouring their humanity out on their desks and giving it away for free so that you can learn how to do simple shit like secure shell. It's amazing. It, and and I'm, I'm, I'm bullish on the human species. 
I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it. I'm bullish on the humans. Terrible Joke Corner brought to you by Bad Joke Cat, as usual. How do you kill a circus? Go for the juggler. And after that Bcash news, man, woo, that circus just needs to burn to the ground. And that'll do it for me today, man. I'm out. Uh, Don't buy Bcash on paper notes. That's a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. Don't, please don't. Just oh, stay away. <laughs> I don't have anything else to say about it. You guys, I'll, I'll see you on the other side. Have a great one. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.